Craig Kelly was a snowboarding god. He was a multi-time world champion. He was a pioneer in professionalizing the sport. He pushed forward technique, and then he got himself on a path to become a mountain guide. So why and how did a man who so many people felt was immortal die in an avalanche? Welcome to the Adventure Journal podcast. I am Stephen Casimiro. Today we are talking to Eric Blem, who has just written an amazing, fact-filled, very detailed book about Craig and what happened to him and how the avalanche occurred and whether any person in particular is responsible. It's called The Darkest White. With me today is my co-host, Justin Hausman. Hey, Justin. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for coming on, Eric. Thanks, Justin. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. Really excited to chat about Craig and the book. Yeah, I'm. I'm so excited to have you here. I mean, the the book is. Uh, I was. I was just. I was blown away by the the depth of the reporting that you you did on this. The the conversations, and so many names that I haven't thought about in years, going back to the '80s and the '90s, and and uh, it's it's a. Uh, in addition to fascinating account of Craig, a biography of Craig and his life and what happened with the slide, the mystery mm. of that, it's also, it's a history of snowboarding. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really what I wanted to, you, you kind of encapsulated what I, what I pitched when I first went to the publisher. I wanted to be able to introduce the world, the current generation to Craig, this, uh, like you said, an icon from the first wave, the first generation of snowboarders who, you know, the younger generation don't know about now. And within that, to kind of push by using his fingerprint throughout the different moments in time of, of snowboarding, you get, I think, a, the first real look at the history of snowboarding while following along uh, a life. And of course, encapsulated by this disaster narrative that was, um, you know, tragic. And, and I have to admit, it was it was hard to dive back into that, those um, dark layers of the story. So, so set the stage for us. So we're we're gonna we're gonna have you set the stage, and then we're gonna talk about Craig and his life and what he was like, and then ultimately we'll be talking about the avalanche. So, so give us kind of the, the little bit more fleshed out thumbnail of of who he was and what happened and and how you were drawn to the book because you you were friends with Craig, you had been on a number of trips and exotic places with him. So, so tell us this backstory. Uh, the backstory is really, I mean, I, if I can jump back to 1984 and when I first started snowboarding, which was just uh, probably about the same time Craig did, I just, you know, fell in love with this sport. And ultimately there was a magazine about it because that's how everybody connected to the world, their own worlds back then, before the internet, before you could do anything else to even, you know, television wise, people were so excited to get an issue of a magazine, BMX, surfing, whatever it was in the mailbox. And Craig was one of those early icons that I was, was a hero to me and so many. And he really rose above the average snowboarder because he was the first rider who really took discipline into hand and, and trained to become a professional. A lot of people always mistake, they, they say he was this prodigy, he was so gifted. No, nah, he, he worked his ass off to get to where he was. And he dropped out of chemical engineering, a chemical engineering degree at the University of Washington. So he was a smart, cerebral guy who'd uh, grown up, uh, you know, a latchkey kid of the 80s with divorced parents and overcame a lot of things in order to then 
risk everything. I mean, he was two quarters shy of graduating with chemical engineering degree to make money for the first time in his life. And he quit it all to take a chance and try and become a pro in a sport that didn't even exist yet. And that's, that's the, the, the thumbnail of Craig himself. Um, for the rest of us out there, he was just a god that we looked at. And I, I, I think there's one part in the book where, you know, the way I described it was he he was this guy who raced av he was born from a blizzard on a on a dormant volcano. He chased he raced avalanches, he um jumped cliffs and he landed on the covers of magazines and became this uh, again a, a role model as well and an ambassador to snowboarding and he was just, I, I, it's, it's hard to describe who Craig Kelly, it's hard to overestimate um, what he meant, how synonymous he was to the sport of snowboarding. If you were a snowboarder in the 80s and early 90s, Craig Kelly was just as much um, a name on the tip of your tongue as Sean White today, let's say. Um, and when I first decided I wanted to write this book many years later, uh, just, you know, it was uh, roughly 15 years after his death. I was at a on a chairlift, at a chairlift line in, in Utah and some kids next to me who looked like, you know, these were kids who rode a lot. They didn't look like the, the you know, weekend warrior. There were kids who I thought would know. And they looked over and they saw a Craig Kelly is my co-pilot sticker on the nose of my board. And just with all deadpan honesty, um, naivete, just said, who's Craig Kelly? And I just was... I was floored. You shoved it him was, off the lift. Uh, it was. It would have been like honestly, I, the way I've uh, explained it for other people who aren't necessarily in our world of of you know snowboarding and skiing um, that might not have heard of him. I said it would be like walking up to a basketball court at some for some pickup game and seeing some kid wearing a Michael Jordan jersey and saying, "Hey, who's Michael Jordan?" I mean, that is how big he was to us. I feel like it, it's probably worth mentioning too, uh, before we get too much further into the book, that um, you don't need to snowboard or have ever even looked at a mountain to appreciate the book. Uh, I I don't I love I love the snow. I go cross country skiing and and snowshoeing all the time, but I've never learned how to ski or snowboard. Uh, but I still found it fascinating, and um, you know, it's also interesting. I I when you mentioned you mentioned early on in the book, at least the Craig Kelly is my co pilot sticker. And I actually, I'm 45, so probably the right age. I remember that, even though mm. I, you know, I, I never, I never went up to the, you know, skiing or anything like that. But I, I remember seeing that around. Um, wow. I, it's, you know, I came from the surf background, so you know, obviously the connections there. And uh, but anyway, so that is, when you when I saw that line, I thought, God, I remember that. That was a big mm. thing, like all over the place. So obviously my friends snowboarded. But anyway, yeah, it's not a kind of book where you're going to be sort of in the weeds with terminology you don't understand i mean it actually it when that there, i mean there's some trick lingo and stuff but i feel like most of the technical talk comes into the avalanche portion of the book which is always fascinating like i mean i, I don't know what it is about reading about avalanches but um like i, I suppose it's like this for everybody but my, like your pulse just kind of quickens um and uh i found that part of the book to be the most like just just flipping through the the pages um even though i know how it ends so anyway yeah. just just a little no. just a little footnote or perhaps not footnote because it's the beginning, but don't worry if you're not a snowboarder. I mean, the book the book will speak to you anyway. Ah, uh, no, I, I appreciate that. Well, Craig Craig is fascinating too. I mean, that that's the thing that struck me. I mean, I knew Craig, but I didn't know him. You know, like like this, like the the person that you whose story that you tell. And I, I was, you know, as Justin, as you were just talking, I was thinking about some of the personalities back in the day. Um, 
you know, Sean Palmer, Damien Sanders. I mean, some of the, <laughs> you know, you had Jim Zellers and Tom Burt. They were sort of doing out there, you know, big adventure stuff. But the different, you had, one of the things that was interesting about snowboarding in the, in the late 80s and the 90s was this, you had these larger than life people, but you also had the sense of inventing a sport as it was going along. So there was this, it was very dy dynamic and exciting time. And you had really incredibly and, and often polarizing personalities. Um, and then there's, there's Craig who, you know, who was like, so, so clearly bright, you know, he was so, he seemed very, he was smart, right. And, um, and motivated. So, so tell us a little bit more about that guy and, you know, like the training that he was doing, the repetitions that he was doing, tell us a little bit more about how he, approach and also as athleticism because he was a bmx rider so give us yeah. a little bit more of that craig yeah the cerebral athlete the trainer that he you know created his own training regimens um it's interesting you said it talked about the different you know crazy characters and so many characters in that era defined were defined by their persona and really craig crossed those boundaries his writing always spoke for itself and um he could hang with the bad boys he could hang with the european hard boot racers who were all about just like you cough you cough you cough you cough you know uh, the carvers the uh the free riders he crossed all boundaries he was that kid that you, you know in high school who hung out with the jocks the surfers the punks the stoners and could hang with them all and was respected by all of them and i think um a lot of what made him that guy was he didn't when he wasn't snowboarding, he didn't take himself too seriously. He was a prankster. And if there's one part of the book that maybe I would have loved to include a little bit more of that, he loved the art of the prank. You know, he, people would say that he um, would, uh, he was such a technical, um, he would, he would basically fuck with you as a, as a fellow racer, not necessarily by, you know, doing anything more than putting a scoop of warm oatmeal in your pocket before your race and you know that morning and someone reaches in their pocket and they realize what the hell i mean todd richards tells a story about that and <laughs> that, you know there's um these little moments that show where he crossed these boundaries really and at the end of the day uh, a lot of people would say that he and jake burton carpenter were very much alike because they just when you li listen to craig talk um he was very mellow he seemed like without even knowing who he was this guy does yoga <laughs> you know, I mean, that was kind of, and at the same time, inside of his head, it's going a million miles an hour. He's planning. He's looking out to his future. He's planning his whole career. As uh, I think it was Mike Ranquit said, his close buddy from the hard, Mount Baker Hardcore, he said, Craig literally engineered his life and career. And that's kind of how we worked through his life, you know, with the different eras. So that guy who was always, you know, figuring out how to make everything perfect. Um, you mentioned the repetition. His father would say, told me how he would, you know, when he played Little League, even really young, all of a sudden one day he's just doing all these push-ups and sit-ups and whatever. And then he's like, how did, you know, he said, my core strength is going to help my swing. And um, I'm doing all these sit-ups because uh, Nolan Ryan does that. And he was a pitcher, Craig. Was, and he's all, how did you figure that out? And this is like a 11 or 12-year-old Craig. And he says, I read his biography. You know, he'd gone to the library, picked up Nolan Ryan's biography at that age. And so he, he would just pull things out of his head like that occasionally. When he got his first car, he was telling a buddy that he um, 
He's like, I'm 16, I saved up, I got my first car, and I got a loan, so I'm establishing my credit with the bank. And he did oh, that yeah. at 16. <laughs> Who thinks about it at 16? He was he was leaps and bounds ahead of everybody. As one another friend said, you know, for the era of six million dollar man, he was bionically smart. That's great. How much of that, you know, the this I was a latchkey kid, so the second I see the word latchkey kid, like I'm I like laser in on that. Um, how much of that do you think is because of him having to kind of figure out things? I mean, you're, you have to be self motivated as a kid, but you also, I, it's interesting. Like he's obviously was a self motivated guy to figure that stuff out. Um, but he also had like valued his freedom like more than almost anything else, which seems sort of like twin pillars of, of my experience as a latchkey kid. But do you think that's a lot of that sort of I'm going to go to the library and check my book out. I'm going to get my credit was because he would just had to kind of make his own way. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And he couldn't afford anything. I mean, he was poor. He, he you know, if he wanted Levi's, his dad, you know, he hated the Sears Roebuck jeans, but that's where his dad had a credit card. And, it, you know, and so he, if he wanted to have jeans. He had to pay for the difference. His dad said, pay the difference. Um, and his mom was very much a part of his life as well. And she would tell me how he, um, you know, the night before a BMX race, she'd try and come and say, Hey, how you going? You want some, you know, cookies or something like that. And he'd like, Shh, get out of here because he was taking his bike completely apart and reassembling it. And he was focusing, he was so focused at a young age. Um, so, you know, he did have time with his parents and quality time with them, yeah. but for the most part, he was on his own. And I think absolutely that's what, you know, he, he, if it was going to happen, he had to make it happen. Yeah. He wanted and to control the, things. Yeah. yeah. And, and, he, and he, and he said that there were times he said that where I think, you know, yeah, it was hard sometimes, but that made him who he was. And, um, that's something that he really, I think appreciated. And he gave credit to that part of his life, um, because it was, you know, very, uh, very, um, defining for him. I, that's what really it is. If, if, if something's going to happen, if I want something, if anything's going to happen, I got to do it. And so he was figuring things like that out at an age when parents were helping their kids figure that out. And he very much was a go-getter on his own. You, you also referenced, too, some of the, the drive, the competitive drive, a little bit of anger in there. Um, so how how close to the surface was that anger? Because I he was known for being very chill. Um how did was he how did he look back on his childhood and how did that inform how he competed he was very i listened to a lot of interviews people were very forthcoming with giving me old interviews where i could hear the full raw footage and um or, or you know uh tape and he it was definitely there and it was his, bro his brother brian who told me you know he was this competitor but to be successful at BMX, you have to be angry. You want to kick people's ass if you're going to be. And he was small for his size. And so part of that, you know, there was some anger with, you know, maybe the childhood situation as well, which, you know, I, I handle very respectfully to the family in the book, but it was, it's there in the, um, it's there in the margins. And I think it's really apparent. I think one thing that he says, uh, the one thing he said live at one point was, uh, uh, there's one writer who interviewed him and said something along the lines of how was your childhood and i think craig said and i'm paraphrasing here but it's exactly spot on in the book um said something along the lines of um i had a varied childhood i had happy times and i had sad times and i thought that said so much it spoke to my heart you know being from a family with you know parents who didn't necessarily get along or my mom died of cancer when i was 17 i mean we all know these moments and you could just see it in him um, that, you know, there was history and that definitely drove him. And was there some anger in that? 
you know, like an angry kid? I think so, for sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about his eras. So, and let's talk about his writing and his style. So, so take us through the different eras of his, you know, from the Mount Baker hardcores and to world champion. What was his path as a snowboarder and as a competitor? And it also, I should say as a visionary. As a visionary. It's, it's funny because when he would reflect himself back, he would often say what made him so successful and what he always tried to embark upon or um and, and part upon other younger snowboarders was hey i was a free rider first i fell in love with snowboarding and free riding before they even called it free riding they were just riding and um then when he started to compete he realized you know the way you're going to um compete and show your skill levels and get sponsored which was everybody's dream was at that point to race. And so there was also um, half pipe came on very early on. And if you could call it a half pipe, I mean, it was like a, a hand dug trench in the snow with, you know, highways from hit to hit, you know, it was just, it was looking back at it now, it's almost embarrassing to, to, to look at it between what they're doing now versus what we did then. But, um, and you also did whatever. I mean, the, the owners of the companies were the rule makers. They figured out the best way to define um, skill. And then, you, you know, if your riders were the best, you were the best. And it, there is that rivalry between Burton on the East Coast and Sims on the West Coast and everybody else in between um, where the East Coast were the icy uh they were used to icy conditions and were the better racers at first. And the West Coast were all about the half pipe that got started with Terry Kidwell and Palmer and um, all of the, um, well, those are the big names, but um, uh, I'm forgetting the name, but the early guys in Tahoe that started that whole scene. So uh, as far as the different eras of Craig, he started out doing everything um, because that's what you did. That's what everybody did. And then very early on, he realized that, you know what? Um, I want to focus on whatever, but he also wanted to be a world champion and to be the overall world champion, you had to be good at everything. And so I'm, I'm kind of crossing, I'm, it's a circuitous route to get to his eras. But um, at one point he realized that um, in a smart way, I think he realized, hey, there's a lot more photographers hanging out at the half pipe because it looks a lot cooler, you know, blasting airs out of the half pipe than trying, you know, going around gates. I mean, if you look, how many pictures of somebody carving around a gate can you look at compared to somebody, you know, in a, a really cool Andrek hand plant or a big tweaked out method air and the half pipe. So he find, he realized, hey, I want to focus on the half pipe. And in doing so, Jake Burton said, you know, really, you want to you want to just focus on that? That's you're going to probably lose your overall world title. And he's all, I don't care. Well, sure enough, he started doing that. And all of a sudden, the following year in magazines, it was all about freestyle and everybody was following Craig kind of, you know, it, it was, he just, did he just, did he really create it or did he just know that's where it was going? Did he predict it? And um, he was so smart that way. So he kind of stopped training in the racing and became this freestyler. And after he taught, finally dominated that and got, um, you know, there's a whole lawsuit between Sims and Burton. We don't even have time for that here, but there was a battle. So, so Sims snowboards, West Coast, uh -huh. Burton snowboards, East Coast, Jake Burton Carpenter. And so uh, Craig was originally with Sims right. and then jumped to Burton. And there was the mystery airboard, which was a blacked out board that Craig was riding. And, was, and there, was, there were lawsuits and it, and it got quite ugly, but he ultimately ended up 
with Burton, correct? And then was was synonymous with Burton. And it kind of was, um, I don't know if you could play what the best analogy is, Adidas and Nike or something, you know, like, like it was, they were battling for supremacy in that space, correct? Yeah, they were battling and I mean, going back to Michael Jordan, the Air Jordan, I mean, Craig, that is what made uh, Nike um, excel in that basketball space when they were originally running shoes, right? And that, which also blasted them huge overall um, with Michael Jordan and, you know, the Craig Kelly Air. Craig Kelly was like the Michael Jordan for Burton because Burton really didn't have a freestyle half-pipe presence at all. In fact, they were lagging big time. They were, you know, they were lame as far as that goes. And Craig, um, getting Craig um, really brought them up into that, you know, not only attracted, um, not only, I'm sorry, not only got them world titles, but I think attracted other riders to Burton, like, hey, Burton is a cool company too now. Where before, you know, Sims was kind of the cool company. They were the, had the, the skaters and the surfers and the freestylers. And it kind of evened the playing field. In fact, if anything, it kind of um, gave, it kind of, gave the um i don't know the um the power it gave a, a power to to burton that they had not had before craig and you know uh it was pretty cool too mark heingartner one of the original racers for burton you know he even gave craig credit um where he he said you know once craig got his contract and started making money all of a sudden we had contracts and we started making money and he you know gave him gave credit to Craig for that because that was really what pushed it forward with him you talk to Craig and he'll turn around and give that credit to Bert Lamar who he feels was the first person to really make money and or Jose Fernandez in the in you know so that's another classic key about Craig very humble somebody you try and give him credit in something and if he knows that that's not necessarily um, the whole story, he would always bring it up. And I thought that was just a really, really um, neat thing about Craig's persona. And again, that humble nature of, of well, later on, and there was a time when he was very, very much like this very, I'm going to kick your ass competitor. And during that period, he was pretty serious. And all of his, all of his fellow riders knew that on the race course, on the mountain, he was serious. He partied and he played hard off the mountain. But when you're ready with Craig, you know, head to head, just be ready to fight. Hey, Eric, I, I'm curious. You, um, I know you live in Southern California, and uh, you, you mentioned being in Baja with him a few times. I mean, you, you, ha- you have a surfing background too, I presume? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's kind, I'm kind of, the, of the fifth, 51% snowboarder, 49% surfer. Okay. So, <laughs> wh- I mean, like when you read about Craig Kelly, um, I mean, to me, like the first name that, well, actually, it just kept coming up over and over again. He just seems like Tom Curran. Like he Kern. just reminds me of Tom Kern exactly. I mean, he's well. The competitive stuff is obviously very Kelly Slatery. I love the I love the oatmeal in a pocket. I mean, that that's totally something that Slater would would do just to kind of <laughs> wig you out before a heat. But everything else just screams Tom Kern. I mean, like walking mm-hmm. away from competitive career because you just don't want to be hemmed in by it and just have other interests and, and things. Um, it's just it's interesting. I mean, Kern wasn't the first like free surfer. And I, it's funny. I never really thought about that. Free surfer and free rider are kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, Curran's kind of generally considered to be the, like, known as the first free surfer, but he, he really wasn't. But, um, you know, he was the most famous to do it and to turn his back on two world titles. And, but also kind of disappear, you know, like, where, what, like, and the stories of, like, Craig popping up in random places and nobody had heard from him for a few years. I mean, that was Curran. I mean, like, the most totally. of the 90s, he just vanished. And then, like, Rip Curl brings it back on the search, and all of a sudden, he's surfing better than anyone in the world. 
mm. in places no one's ever been on boards no one's ever seen it, it's it's astounding the comparison um yeah and uh, i'm i just was wondering if that occurred to you as well well there were two i had two photos two posters on my wall um when i was at, at that in that age and it was craig kelly and tom curran yeah um, i mean that's now, probably common yeah Totally. And, um, and that to, to come back to trying to follow and close the loop on what Steve had mentioned as far as these eras, that really was the next era. It got to the point where Craig was like, wait a minute, I've made these world titles. I've had these world titles in freestyle overall, four-time world champion, like seven various titles in between the different disciplines like half pipe or giant slalom or super G or whatever it was. And then he kind of said, you know, I think I just want to free ride. And I just, and I want to film. And at first, you know, Jake and Donna and um, all the guys at, um, at Burton were like, you want us to basically pay for your heli time and that's what you're going to do now. <laughs> and he, and he was trying to, well, yeah. And what he really <laughs> came down to was he realized that he realized and the way he sold it to them, again, very smart, was that this is what the average snowboarder who is buying these snowboards yeah. out there, they love this feeling of what you get when you what when you free ride. There's a reason why everybody wants the contest to end so they can do what? Free ride. And that's Craig honed in on that and he was able to do that. And at the same time, he also saw the rearview mirror and knew people were coming up. Mm -hmm. And how long am I gonna hold on to this? How can I transition out of this? It was engineered. He was so smart. And all of a sudden, as people came up like Terrier and, um, you know, down the, well, much further, Sean, down the road, but Brushy was starting to beat him. His his protégés were starting to beat him. Uh, Duck Boy Wallace, Keith Wallace. And it was really fascinating that Keith would say, you know, uh, Craig was just so disciplined and so confident in himself, but he was also smart enough to know that eventually someone's going to beat him. And I think that's all in that same general vicinity. Meeting Terrier and seeing who Terrier was, who truly was a prodigy. And, you know, he worked hard, but he was a prodigy. And um, Craig noticed that and he's like, I, you know, what's my next step? Because all I want to do is ride. I want to keep this in my life. And he created that free riding. So he was kind of the first free rider who was still getting paid. Didn't get a cut in pay. In fact, started making more money because he got more coverage got more photo incentives and video percentage uh, or incentives. He just, he was a genius. He really was. So he probably could have gotten all the heli time he ever wanted, but he transitioned away from that. He transitioned into uh, split boarding, mountaineering and guiding. And if I'm recalling this correctly, there was one trip in particular that was really impactful for him. So, so tell us about, I mean, I mean, man, jumping in an A-star and getting a lift and doing it over and over again. I mean, that, it's, it's pretty addicting, especially I'm sure if somebody else is paying for it. So to kind of leave that behind and embrace this other side, tell, why did he do that? And tell us about that path for him, because that's the path that ultimately leads him to his fate. Yeah, well, um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that I introduced him to his first look at a slipboard when we were at an avalanche course, actually. And I had the Nitro Tour, which was this, this beast of a board that I had, like, right, the Reikley snowboarder hard shell boots. And um, Craig got a peek at it. And I remember him 
looking at that first rendition of a, of a split board. Grant, there were other people who were making homemade boards, you know, Cowboy and, you know, John Buffery, who became one of Craig's mentors and others had, and, and in Europe as well. But the first real, um, I think, far reaching manufactured was this Nitro Tour. And Craig sat there in my room at Island Lake Lodge where I was taking a level one avalanche course and he was uh, shadowing the course and he looked at this board and kind of just shook it and put boots in and out and lifted it and flexed it and did everything to it. And at the end of it, he just looked at me and said, I got to tell you, you couldn't pay me enough to ride this thing. <laughs> he was so about the powder riding and the flex of the board. And he didn't want anything to interfere with that feeling, the feeling of snowboarding. And he thought that um, a split board would jeopardize that feeling. Um, but then, uh, you know, again, jumping all over the place for the actual um, storyline. But um, he ended up at a place where he was uh, stuck in a storm and he had snowshoes and Dave Downing had a prototype split board from Burton and he was just getting two or three runs for every one of Craig's. And he's finally, you know, Downing actually had an extra board and he said, give it a try. And that rocked his world. All of a sudden he's like, I can walk on, you know, somewhat on top of this snow. And it was several days. They were like snowed in in a yurt um, and they were supposed to have heli and the, and the, the heli couldn't get in. So they rode many days, like I think three or four days, um, you know, using split boards and that rocked his world. And he's like, I'm never going to use snowshoes again. I'm never going to boot pack again. This is like the Swiss army knife of snowboarding. And that became his, his really his goal. And he also, at the same time, I think slowly, uh, you know, was realizing just the beauty of the mountains. And you can, when you're not so exhausted, staring at your feet, post holing, you can start to look around a little. And you can see the beauty of, you know, the scenery. And he would say that straight up, like I could look around. And I think that is something that finally, when you have the fitness and the ability to look around while you're there, it wasn't so much about the riding. It was about the overall experience. And um, he was more than happy to spend an entire day hiking for one run. And at one point, I think it's quoted in the book um, somewhere, uh, he, he said exactly that, that if I had a choice of one run, um, would it be split boarding? Would it be a heli lift to the top of wherever? I mean, he would go to Weegly, Mike Weegly, and and get with um, Mike Weegly helicopter skiing. Mike, Weigley, yeah, Mike Weegly helicopter skiing, and um, uh, with Don Schwartz and 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 Ken Ockbach, and he would stay there with and help coach, you know, some uh, this one rich guy that basically wanted these guys to coach him, and they he, they footed the bill, and he he would get you know. Uh, 20 30,000 vertical feet a day for weeks at a time and what a scam and so he had experienced all this yet he just still decided i when i earn my turns the the ride is more special and uh you know that's i think the it's that transition of age and and wisdom but also just the technology of the equipment it allowed him to um to you know, merge together into this Zen-like figure. I mean, he was the Obi-Wan Kenobi of snowboarding, for sure. Great. Okay, well, that, that seems like a great place to take a pause. Uh, when we come back, we are going to find out how Craig came to be in the slide, his path to becoming a guide that he was on, and more. We will be right back. 
You love adventure, we love adventure, and that is why we created Adventure Journal in print. It is the gift that we've made for ourselves and for our friends and hopefully for you that is analog, that gets away from screens, that gives you some of the most interesting, deepest and thoughtful stories from some of the best writers and photographers working in the outdoor space. We do four a year. You get free shipping and a deep discount. It's 60 bucks to have this absolutely beautiful, no batteries necessary celebration of adventure in your mailbox. Get it at adventure-journal.com. I am drinking, it's gotten cold now because we're halfway through the show. I am drinking Long Weekend Coffee. We launched Long Weekend Coffee earlier this year to bring you and us blends that are not fussy, that will take any kind of brew method that we like, whether it's at home, in a cabin, on the tailgate of a truck, doesn't matter. We have four blends. We have dark, medium, espresso roast, and a decaf. I think they're pretty amazing. I guarantee you will like them. Check us out at longweekend.coffee. Welcome back. We are talking with Eric Blem. He is the author of The Darkest White, a brand new book that is both a mystery story and a biography and a history. We're talking about Craig Kelly, who was a snowboarding god who transitioned out of competitive snowboarding into becoming on the path of becoming a certified mountain guide. He was also a pioneer in that, and then he was killed in an avalanche in January of 2003. Eric also just wrote a piece for um, for AJ, for AJ Imprint, about Craig, and um, it ran in AJ31, which is out now. And uh, so, let me tell you a little bit about the slide, and then we're going to hear more about this from Eric. So, so Craig was on a path to becoming a guide, and he was he was on a trip. Um, or, well, actually, Eric, you tell us: was he apprenticing? What was he doing with Rudy Beglinger? So he was he was with Rudy Beglinger, who is it was an Austrian guide, correct, or German? Austrian? He was Swiss. Swiss. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so Rudy was Swiss. And Rudy's operation, which was in British Columbia, and it was called uh, Selkirk Mountain Experience. Selkirk Mountain Experience. And Rudy was not heli; it was all human powered. It was all earn your turns. And mm. Craig was interning with him, apprenticing with him. What was Craig doing with Rudy? Yeah, he was he was on the path to becoming the first snowboarder who would be certified by the ACMG, the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, which was like the cream of the crop as far as um, guides. Really, I mean, some people would even say in the world, I mean, the European guides are very famous for their alpinism. But as far as uh, ski and, uh, you know, big terrain, big wilderness and working their way through it, the Canadian guides are very renowned around the world, renowned around the world. So he had, was working his way up towards this uh, certification process. And as part of that, uh, you have to, uh, or you're encouraged to do an apprenticeship or in Canada, they would say that uh, a practicum. And they would always encourage you to go with and work with a guide who you're not familiar with and also in a place that you're not familiar with. So if Craig was doing a lot of his tail guiding at uh, Baldface Lodge as, at a cat skiing operation, 
And so the, they would often say, you know, go someplace where you're going to learn because you, you have to ultimately pass a very difficult test that is not a give me at all. The, the instructors of these courses, they do a very difficult thing where they basically ask these, um, these applicants that are in this course to guide them through various terrain. And at the end of the day, they need to do this very well and in a variety of terrain, including glacial terrain and, and a lot of uh, skills that they need to display, including route finding and, you know, rope work, whatever. And so to prepare for that, Craig um, joined up for a week long class at Selkirk Mountain Experience, working with Rudy Beglinger, who was very well known. He's Swiss Canadian. He um, might, um, immigrated from Switzerland back in the, about the time when Craig started snowboarding, honestly, around 84, I think, or 83, started as a heli guide. He found this beautiful patch of land outside of Revelstoke and the Selkirks and got uh, permits for it. And his whole shtick, his whole drive was basically the way he, he sold it when he was getting his permit was, we're going to do heli skiing without the helicopter. Um, we're going to climb for our, our turns with, you know, telemark skis where you climb up and tour up and then you ski down. And he became over time very well known as this um, guy who was who uh, would get a lot of vertical feet. His, his clients really wanted a lot of vertical feet and he has a very technical terrain. And Craig did his homework. He asked around and he talked to various people he knew who where is the best place I can get a have a practicum and really you know, learn the things that I need to learn. And um, at the same time, Rudy Beglinger was also a very, an early split boarder. He wanted to have um, snowboarders, you know, as a businessman and as just a, you know, a, a, an alpinist, he wanted to get, uh, allow his users, his clients, his guests to see the mountain as any way they could. But if they wanted to snowboard, uh, snowshoers just could not keep up with a telemark skier or, you know, or rondonet equipment. And so he ultimately uh, started using little, you know, cut skis, short Miller skis to approach. And you'd w ride down with, the, with those skis strapped to your back and you could somewhat keep up then. But then when split boards occurred and started getting marketed, that he started becoming the guy who was known. He was, he was literally the first touring operation that marketed to snowboarders. So he really was a, 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 the person who would be uh, the the obvious choice if you could go anywhere to get your practicum craig did so yeah so so rudy's business is people pay him to guide them in human powered so he he had a lodge and he had a number of guides that he worked with and like with a helicopter operation, you would go to a lodge, you would, you, you would go with guides, they would fly you in, you get to the top of something, you ski down, you go back up and do it again. So everything that Rudy did was all earn your turn. So the type of clientele that he attracted were people who were interested in climbing all day and then skiing down all day. And so it was, he generally had a pretty um, accomplished clientele base, right? A client base. And he was known as, uh, well, I don't know, would it be fair to call him a hard ass? I mean, he was, he was a driven dude. He is a driven dude, he, right? Yeah. Yeah, he pushed his clients to their limits physically to get a lot of turns in if they wanted it. And that was the type of client that ultimately became drawn to Rudy. He wanted the people who were there weren't the, you know, mediocre, not so much in shape weekend warriors. If you're going to go there, 
you are going to go and get a lot of turns and work for them. And you're going to be tired. You're going to want dinner at the end of the day and that bed. Right. So let's talk a little, let's touch on snow science a little bit, because um, you did a lot of reporting about the snowpack. And because the snowpack and, and layers within the snowpack, which is a snowpack, for those of you who don't know, snowpack, you know, snow falls, it doesn't fall, temperatures change, the snow metamorphosizes, more snow falls. You get these layers like a cake within the snowpack that will affect its potential stability down the road when skiers or snowboarders are on top of that. And those layers in the snowpack and the history of the snowpack is something that guides and snow safety experts really look, look very closely at. And so this particular snowpack had um, it had a, a rain layer. So what had happened was in no November, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in November, so you had snow and then it got warm and then it rained and then it froze again. And so that created a firmer layer within the snowpack, which then as new snow falls on top of that, it has that you have that it's, uh, you know, it's almost like an ice rink under there. It has the potential for new snow to slide on that really well. Is that correct, Eric? Is that, am I... Yeah, okay. absolutely, in the layman's term, for sure. And then that those layers either bond together or they remain uh, separate. You know, they, they, they don't, the, the, the coercion between them uh, makes them much more uh, susceptible to slide on steeper terrain. And um, that's really that season, it was setting up to be that type of a season. Um, also, what makes it, uh, what made it especially uh, dangerous that year was that during after that first rain there was a period of time with little to no wind and generally wind will you know it will help scour away uh like surface hoar that builds up and the granular uh surface that lands on top of that frozen layer but because of this just stillness that occurred it allowed all this um it allowed all of these surface hoar to rise up which is like uh, you know like dew like um frost basically you see in your fridge that would build up and then the snow would land on top. And that's of a very that. weak layer, right? It does it does not it's, bond. It, if you if you picture that frost in your fridge, mm. you get these crystals yeah. that are are kind of fragile. It's often will turn into like a sugar snow, which just does not bond at all. And so it creates almost like it can create almost like ball bearings upon which that snowpack can release and run. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That's what it is. I mean, there's all different sorts of, of, of uh, metaphors for it. I, I talk about, I think, just having crystal glasses stacked on top of each other. Um, and, you know, that's that was what was kind of setting up that season. And he, you know, and Craig was aware of that. And they were all aware of that. And they were looking at that as um, just another season because every season has its own, you know, personality in the snowpack. And you have to deal with it. And he, you know, was uh, his friends, uh, John Buffery, who was a, a mentor, was a little bit nervous about that. But he was also excited um, because Craig was so, again, cerebral. He knew this. He he um, he was not afraid to speak up. He was trained better than anybody at that point. He'd gone through two different a level two course as well in avalanche safety, which is kind of like the the level where uh, the Canadian Transportation Service has people that become avalanche forecasters to keep the roads open, you know, at that level or ski patrol at ski resorts, they all pass this highest level avalanche forecasting course. And Craig had gone through that as well as part of this uh, goal to become a, a Canadian mountain guide. That's one of the prerequisites that are that he was going through. So if you imagine he's studying all the snow, he's studying the science of it, he's observing it. 
And um, at some point, you have to go out and make your own decisions. Um, but at the same time, you're also wanting to learn from people who have done it longer than you. You know, that's what mentorships are all about. And Craig was big about mentorships, uh, that humble nature of him. He would he would look to other people who had uh, experienced whatever it is in life. Um, and that that held, you know, credibility for him. And that's what Rudy was. So so we have this we have this layer in the snowpack and Rudy's operation um, for just picture it. It's it's the heart of BC, and and he's surrounded by other operations. So he's not out all by himself, and there's nobody around for a hundred miles. You have helicopter operations, helicopter skiing operations. You have cat skiing and snowboarding operations. You have a lot of people that have eyes on this snowpack, and it was interesting to me their take on it. So Mike Wigley. His operation in Blue River, BC, um, they were responding to that layer in a really different way than others were. They were they're very conservative and they were I think you you reported that they weren't letting their clients ski anything above 30 degrees in steepness, which is not that steep, really. No. Yeah. That, yeah. They literally said if you take any of your clients on anything steeper than 30, uh, you can pack your locker and you're going home. You're <laughs> fired. That's how serious they took it. Um, and there, there's a whole service of reporting, though, as well. Like you said, it's called the InfoX. And at that point, these mechanized courses were privy to this uh, reporting pro, um, this reporting service, let's say, um, that would report avalanches amongst these different groups. Uh, Rudy and a lot of the smaller backcountry uh, touring operations who didn't maybe have the satellite set up to get this information weren't as privy to all the details they were getting more of a a kind of a condensed version of these reports every few days and so that's that's that was also the situation as well so so rudy comes to a different conclusion so he's out so take us let's walk through this day um how many people are on the hill how many guides are on the hill and, and give us the the cast of characters there's rudy there's a there's an apprentice guide um, so what, what I'd love to hear from you is give us this dynamic. How many people are on the hill? How many groups? And then what kind of terrain are they going into? So ultimately, and also we should probably know how, the size of the slide and how many people actually died. It wasn't just Craig. There were a number of people that died in that. So, so give us that scene. Okay. Is, there's a lot to unpack in a short time. I know. The, I know. The, there's, the there's a lot going on. So, and I'll, so I'm just going to, I need to say it. This book, I was, I was, Eric, I was blown away. I mean, I really like you did such a masterful job with taking, you know, a very complex topic, a lot going on. There's so even when we get to the slide, there's there's just so much happening and sort of digging out like what what happened and who was where, when, and then putting that into that first understanding that, but then telling that story in a way that we can follow it. So if you're listening to this, it, it, we may be jumping around a little bit, but like the, the book really sort of walks you through all of this. It, it really, I was very impressed. You've, you've really crushed it with this one. I can't wait for people to get their hands on it. But so understanding we, we have limited time and um, there's a lot right. going on. Walk us, walk us through that. I will. Okay. And also to understand this is, you know, this is in hindsight, you're looking at it and I'm reporting what, you know, I talked to almost all the survivors. Uh, there were 21 people on the hill that day. And that included Rudy was the head guide, the lead guide. And there was an assistant guide who was also certified as an assistant guide um, named Ken Wiley, uh, Craig and another um, 
apprenticeship or apprentice um, named uh, Jeff Bullock was there as well. And then there were a few employees from Selkirk Mountain Experience that inevitably come along on the on the days. Um, there were a few a few of them, and then the bulk of the people were guests. And so there were two. Generally, Rudy would work with two guests, two groups, both guides, and through a lot of human situations of uh, in the days leading up to this, uh, there the Rudy had a lead group that had. 13 people and the back group was was that eight people it adds up to 21 sorry my math it's seven or eight um in the in the back group and they were following at a distance and um it got to a point where rudy had to make a choice on terrain and they had gone to a new place in the and his vast you know his terrain i can't remember how many acres i'm not going to quote it right now but I, it's a vast area and they were going to a new part of the mountain and uh, up, up the mountains that are where his uh, chalet is located and they had to um i think what it was that they had two mountains that they were uh, or two runs that they were focused on for that day one was la traviata west kuar and the other was was Fronalp peak and as they were approaching Fronalp peak which was supposed to be the initial goal that morning uh it started getting fogged in and uh, he wanted to give for a few different reasons uh the, the day before the assistant guide had gotten uh kind of turned around in the fog and there was some communication issues that are revealed in the book that show how there was this human dynamic that always the human factor in all situations and all those factors that are built built up to them deciding we're going to do la traviata west kuar before frontal peak and do the do the um do the do the clients have a say in this? I mean, I realize they're paying they're paying their guide to to uh to to obviously safely get them through these sorts of things. But um, I mean, I'm presuming it's attracting people who all who know what they're doing, right? Like we've yeah. you know covered that these are not like weekend warriors. These are people who probably spend a lot of time in 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 pretty hairball backcountry situations. Is this is this sort of like a let's all kind of chat? What are we comfortable with? Or is it like I'm your Swiss guide and like we're gonna do it my way? Right. How does that go? Well, it's, okay, so first of all, it's, it's, this is 21 years ago. Things are different now versus then. But in general, uh, this was, you know, Rudy was that classic European guide who was, I'm going to pick where we're going to go. I'm going to make the decisions and you're going to follow me. And that was, um, and at some point I've, I spoke to other guides who worked with him, assistant guides, and he would definitely discuss this with other guides as well, even at that point in time. In this particular case, uh, the assistant guide it was only nine had only been at the on the hill one week before and a few days into this. So I think it was his eighth day guiding in this area. This is Wiley. And so this is Ken Wiley. And so was there a um, did he really converse with where we're going to go? No, he didn't. He basically told him you're going this here and this is where you're going to go. Uh, Wiley didn't know the terrain. He had proven to he had gotten turned around and lost the day before. And so yeah. he, what Rudy was doing at that point was kind of helping him understand the terrain. And as the season would progress, he would give him more, you know, in that metaphor of a, of a leash. He'll extend the leash, you know, kind of a thing to, to let it until he felt comfortable with him guiding his own clients on a separate peak, which is what he generally would do. Um, but in this case, um, you know, they decided to do this one run and they did it um, closely together. Both groups ended up in climbing a, a kuar, 
um, at the same time. So we're, so we're talking about a couloir, which is a, which is kind of a chute, basically. And so the, ter Correct. the terrain narrows here. And, um, so Rudy takes his group up and they're, they're, they're switchbacking. They're making these zigzags up the chute and, and a chute you have less room to run. It tends snow funnels into it. Um, it. They can be very dangerous. And Ken Wiley's group is behind Rudy's and they're kind of parked in a zone of safety under some cliffs, right? Is this, is that correct? Um, they were uh, on approach. They did what was called a, a high line approach into this couloir. We need you stay as high as you can before you actually enter the area where your group is exposed. And um, that was kind of like Rudy's standard approach for any sort of a gully when he um, he wouldn't want to he, he tried to avoid bottom approaches, you know, from the very bottom. So he, you're kind of entering this um, this slope itself halfway up. Um, so half of it, you've stayed behind these rocks and then you enter this gully and you're exposed for, you know, a number of minutes, maybe 10 minutes in that little zone. Um, and generally there is, would, you know, you would do, you want to limit exposure to your group um, in touring. What Craig found out and what I've found out in is that oftentimes, you know, your group does stay together in areas where there is danger. And that was something that Craig had not only first experienced there, he'd experienced it at Rogers Pass, working with other guides and um, just getting to know what it's like to be a guide. It's a situation. But you always look at all the different risks, the involvement of this in the snowpack, uh, the run out, the potential consequences. And Rudy Beglinger made a decision based upon the history of that run and the tests that he'd done during the weeks before. And and the reason why you don't cluster together is, well, there's, there's a couple. One is that if a slide takes place, then fewer people are potentially exposed. But the other is if a, a slide takes place, the fewer people exposed, the more people you have for rescue, which which can become an issue. And so so Rudy and his group, most of his group tops out. They, they get out of the top of uh, La Traviata and um, they make their way to a bit more safe area where it's, it's not as steep. They're kind of up on a ridge. And then, um, but he still has a few guests that are kind of behind. In, in Craig is Craig is tailgunning on Rudy's group. Is that right? He's the last guy in Rudy's group? He is the uh, second to the last guy in Rudy's okay. group 13. Okay. Correct. So, and so then you have Ken Wiley. And um, so, so let me step back a little bit. So, Rudy never he he never addressed the avalanche and, and he never took responsibility for for the decision making throughout this whole process and he was vilified by a lot of people he a lot of people felt like he had uh was was he was responsible for the decisions that led to Craig Kelly's death and um when you started this project you went into this thinking about him a bit as a villain who had never really address this, address this in a way that was satisfying for people. Is that correct? Oh yeah, for sure. And by the Ken Wiley ultimately wrote a book, a memoir, some 10, I think 10 years after the event. And he definitely added to that vilification with that book, I would say it's safe to say, um, and just articles. And I had saved all of the, uh, telemark tips was a, was a chat or I don't think call it chat room back then, but whatever it was, there was a, a group discussion online that was very, very, 
uh, heated, let's put it, let's say. And so, yeah, no, there was two very defined groups. One was that uh, Rudy Begliner led all these people to their deaths, and it was absolutely his part, his fault about ego and hubris. And then others said, this, it happens in the mountains. And he, um, it's just an, ex it's not totally unexpected. It's an, an accident, it's tragic. And then there were some people in between that said there was a little bit, you know, could see both sides a little bit. I went into it, you know, seeing all this information and like, I could not understand how, what at the end of the day, the number of people, you know, I think it was 13 people were taken by this avalanche at once in a fairly narrow area on the mountain. And it just didn't, it never added up to me. And even in the coroner's reports and the reporting, no one really ever addressed why or how that happened. Um, it, it just kind of always was glossed over and I was never um, satisfied. Spoiler alert, we're not uh, going to spoil it, but you do, yeah. you do draw conclusions about this and, um, about what were the, the decisions that ultimately led to this. And I, I want to get back to the, the actual avalanche itself, but Justin, jump in, please. I'm just, just one of the things I thought was super interesting in the discussion of the, the sort of, um, the forensic sort of discussion of, of, of the avalanche a coroner, like, why would a, I was surprised that like a coroner report would take into account like the the avalanche specifics. Is that a normal? Th I mean, it almost seemed like the coroner had like a like a like a say in like how the slide happened a little bit. At least that was the way I read it. Is that normal for a coroner to t kind of talk about the snow conditions that day and stuff like that? Yeah, well, they want to find out the you know the cause of death. Obviously, they want to find out if there is negligence or gross negligence. There's all these things in Canadian law that are supposed to be looked into. Um, and the coroners who ultimately hired some um, other guides, basically snow science professionals and snow safety professionals to go up and, you know, measure the slide, the dimensions, uh, dig pits at the various points where the avalanche released at the crown of the avalanche, um, where the skiers were, where Rudy was, you know, to find out what was the trigger, to, trigger what was the mechanism of the slide and not necessarily to find fault. Um, right. but to find facts and that's what they were always very clear about. And that was frustrating to people who lost loved ones, of course. So we, we have Rudy's group up on top and we have a bunch of people in this couloir and the avalanche occurs. Now what? Well, when it happened, first of all, it was, it was conveyed to me so differently by every person that was what was so interesting to me the acoustics in the mountain like some people would hear this like a shotgun blast or an explosion right here but someone 20 feet away only remembers feeling the snow settling that makes a big very big wolf sound and then the group below you know whether they saw snow moving around them first or not but all of this these dynamics basically what happened steve is the um the mountain came to life like a like a monster and really in this in the book and in any situation like this the avalanche is a character in the book and they call it the the buried dragons under the snow like the dragon woke up it had been a sleeping dragon those layers and the right triggers happened or the mechanisms everything lined up where it slid on a great number of people and so if you can imagine being the lead guide of 21 people in total two separate groups and this happens and there's this explosion and he's called back to the top of this run that he's come up and he's he's basically 
uh, I won't say in shock because that makes it sound like he's nervous. He was very, 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 very much put together and and um, calm about the whole thing. Everybody said they were amazed at that. But he looked down this slope they had just climbed up and literally there was 13 people of his 21 person group was gone, erased from the snow, erased from the planet. And he's looking around him and the seven people that he's with are all his um, clients. Everybody who had any training, uh, official training, his guides, his assistant guide, um, both of the apprentices were under the snow as well. And it's like the, the clock's ticking. Uh, you know, you, you count heads when you're a guide, kind of like when you're at a lake and you're in charge of kids, you're always looking like one, two, three, four, five, six, okay, seven, they're fine. But when the, if, if all of a sudden there's not heads on the top surface of the, of the lake, there's only so much time that they have. And that's just what, what Rudy, you know, described to me as the, uh, the biggest nightmare of his life looking there. Such a and, lonely feeling, I would think. Wow. And that gave me chills, man. Yeah. Thinking about, I mean, just picturing yeah. you're looking down the slope and they're just all gone. There's nothing. There's nothing. And then that's where, you know, they do do some, you know, training. Everybody does in the backcountry operations with their clients. There's a certain amount of training that everybody has. Everybody has transceivers on. But that was just like this this silence. Even uh, Rick Reynolds, one of the one of the clients that was there, looked down, and the first thought in his mind was, "We're not going to get everybody." And um, and uh, Heidi Heidi Bieber, who was another, she was a nurse actually, and she was up top, and she was just like frozen, like she she just was. Everybody was in shock, but then you had to act, and all within a minute, and so. Luckily, with the radio logs and everything like that, you know, to put it all together, how do you recreate chaos? And that's really what what I attempted to do. And I think, you know, by talking to the people who were, I won't, you know, we won't say who, but uh, some are buried and survive, and a lot of people are buried and don't survive. And we um, go through the process of that moment and i really wanted to, to, to be a raw account i don't think you know people have said so far that it's it's the most raw account they've experienced of reading an actual avalanche and that's really i wanted for craig because i feel like there is learning even this many years later and uh, aside from just the new information that i was able to you know uncover and and by talking to the people who were involved but just in general you um if, if you put it all out there in a very visceral, raw sense, I, I feel like people are going to think before they enter a slope in the future. And I think that is a legacy that's great for Craig and great for all of them, uh, because uh, it, it really is something that, you know, if, if, if you've, you, if people read about, oh, so-and-so was buried and they got uncovered or so-and-so was killed in an avalanche, you're not right there beside them. You don't understand that the snow turns into concrete and you know that the clock's ticking and you're exhausted and your shovel breaks and uh, the transceivers start reverting back to send and you're searching for somebody who's actually standing beside you because, you know, and then you realize, oh, when did that happen? Has it been seven minutes? When was it set to start, you know, transponding again? Uh, or has it been 15 minutes? And, you know, time stands still at the same time, it's, it's at breakneck speed and every moment you know, uh, there's only, uh, you know, a certain amount of survivability after a certain number of minutes. And 
it was chaos. It was hell. Dude, my, my palms are sweating. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So it's, it really, I, I, I think that, you know, uh, it, I didn't want to pull any punches. I wanted to really show the world what these people went through. And I will say that, you know, the, the survivors, uh, attempting to rescue the rest were heroic. And, um, at the end of the day, it's just, it, it's a tragedy. But there's always something that can be learned. And I think that there's a lot of new information that came out as a result. And, and I'm really proud of it. You should be. It's heartbreaking. You, you should be. It is heartbreaking. But, I, you know, the, the book honors Craig. It, it does, I think, justice to his life. And it answers some big questions. Um, and, and I think I, I, I always wondered you know, exactly what happened and what was the decision-making process that led to it. And now I think that we, you know, thanks to your reporting, we have that, we have that conclusion, but of course, to, to get that, you're going to have to read the book. The book is the darkest white. The author is Eric Blem. Eric, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for doing the book, man. I mean, this is really, it is such a, yeah, I wouldn't say it if it weren't true. This is just such a, a, a wonderful contribution to um, our understanding of Craig and, and uh, snowboarding and and also of the, you know, it gives you such a visceral nature of a, of a, of a slide and, you know, and, and the, both the drama and the tragedy and, and the seriousness of it, which um, if you've never been around one, I don't think you can fully understand. So, so thank you so much for listening. Um, we have links to all of the various things. The book is out now. We will link to it in the show notes. You can get more Adventure Journal at adventure-journal.com. Follow us, like us, all the usuals, and we will catch you next time. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, thank you. Thanks, man. That was great. Awesome. <laughs>